before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes including an interview next week with Peter Enns, the author of The Bible Tells Me So, and his latest book, The Sin of Certainty, Emily G. Miller of the Religious News Services, and interviews with folks from General Assembly. And now on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's podcast is Amy Julia Becker. She is the contributing writer for Christianity Today and authored over four books, including the upcoming release of White Picket Fences. Amy is a graduate of Princeton University and Princeton Theological Seminary. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, abcnews.com, The Atlantic, Christianity Today, Christian Century, The Huffington Post, Parents.com, I mean, just on and on and on. And yet she took time to actually have a conversation with me. So Amy, Julia, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here today. All right. For those that aren't too familiar with your story, tell us a little bit more about you. Well, I am um, a mom of three kids. I've got a 12-year-old daughter, Penny, who has Down syndrome, and a lot of my writing has been related to uh, faith and disability, and so I really started writing a lot um, after she was born, kind of for the public eye. I have two younger children who are now 10 and 7, William and Marilee. And so I've also done some, a lot of thinking and writing in the parenting space. Um, and I'm just a person who really likes to think about the world. My uh, life story has been a lot of enjoying school and <laughs> enjoying reading and writing and thinking about it and talking to people about it. And so uh, when uh, Penny came into our lives and then when my kids also, my younger children also came into our lives, um, I started doing a lot of writing around, around them and then uh, just reflecting and thinking uh, especially through the lens of faith, because I have been um, a Christian for a long time as well, and trying to make sense of my life with that in mind. Uh, that's been a part of my story as well. Yeah. Well, I'm, this question I'm about to ask next, I'm realizing 
as it's formulating in my mouth that it sounds very stalkerish, but y'all are in Connecticut. Is that right? <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Yeah. So um, we, I, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina until I was about 10 years old, which was a really formative experience for me. But my family, both of my parents are from Connecticut originally. And so my grandparents, um, you know, lived in Connecticut uh, for their whole lives. And we moved here when I was 10. And although I have not spent my entire adult life in Connecticut, we've been back in Connecticut for the past six years. So there's a lot of Connecticut in my story. Well, this is why it's weird. Okay. Um, so I came to North Carolina via a year in Connecticut and then grew up oh, in really? North Carolina for 28 plus years and just relocated to Louisiana. So we lived in um, Madison, which is right outside of New Haven along the coast. <laughs> yes, that's actually where we have a house. <laughs> so, oh, really? In Madison? Um, yeah, I'm not, like, that's really funny. My um, My dad grew up in Madison and my mom's grandfather bought a summer house in Madison in the 1920s, which is still there. So um, I have been to Madison for some part of every year of my life. That's crazy. Hey, uh, listeners, you're just going to have to pause and listen to all this. That's insane. Like I was sitting here thinking, <laughs> oh, maybe she's heard of Madison because you know how many people I've talked to who live in Connecticut who don't know Madison. What, what town in North Carolina were you were you in? I lived in Edenton, North Carolina, which is um, near the coast. It's kind of like uh, about an hour from Nags Head. Yep. One of my sweet mates in college was from Edenton. So that's crazy. So oh, no but, way. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. So uh, back, back to your story. Uh, you know, I, yes. I digress. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you head off to, to Princeton um, and enter into seminary. You know, a lot of people, as they're sensing this call to ministry and doing the vocational training and theological education to get to that point, are thinking heading off into chaplaincy or pastoral uh, ministry or something along those lines. So you went a different route. You went into the ministry of writing. Um, tell us about that. Well, I didn't know that was the route I was taking. So I had, I went to Princeton University as an undergrad and I was really involved in parachurch ministry. So had led some Bible studies and after college continued working for a parachurch ministry uh, called Focus that works with students in independent schools, so private day schools and boarding schools. And while I was doing that, I really um, felt a call to ministry as a chaplain in those schools. So that's what prompted me to go to seminary. Meanwhile, my husband left investment banking, worked doing some um, nonprofit development work uh, for a couple of years, and then started teaching in a school um, in New Jersey. So I went to Princeton Seminary while he was teaching. We were living together at a boarding school in a dorm of 30 boys. Um, I continued to lead Bible studies with some students at that school. And at the same time, I had been writing a, a book about an experience we had because my husband's mom, right when we were moving to New Jersey, was diagnosed with liver cancer. And we ended up becoming her primary caregivers during that time. Um, actually down in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, and it was a really formative experience in many ways. Um, but I wrote so much about it that by the time I got to seminary, I was starting to wonder whether I really wanted, at least for some season of my life, to be writing books. So I continued through seminary, did two years of an MDiv, and then our daughter Penny was born. And when she was born, I similarly just journaled and journaled and journaled about this unexpected news that she had Down syndrome. And whenever I wrote about some of these things, and you know, at that point, it was very early on in the um, 
age of blogger dumb. And so I did start a blog just to let people know what was going on with Penny. And there was um, a lot of response from people who just were uh, really touched by what I wrote. And there was starting to be in me a sense of, oh gosh, maybe writing is a ministry. And just as I've always wanted to communicate to people through teaching um, and speaking, that can also happen through writing, which I absolutely love. Um, and which also, quite frankly, is um, a more flexible job uh, to have with small children and especially with a child with special needs. So over time, even though I was still in seminary, this sense of a call to be uh, in ministry through writing became much more pronounced. Um, and I started writing more and more. And I um, you know, ended up writing a book about our experience of receiving Penny um, that came out in 2011. So now seven years ago, it's called A Good and Perfect Gift. Um, and things just really progressed from there in terms of both my writing career, but also really, as you said, like seeing the writing as a ministry in and of itself and a way to communicate truth and beauty and to care for people, um, both through books, but also through articles and blog posts and things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> you're not going to say this about yourself, but you're a pro prolific writer. I mean, again, your work's been featured in New York Times, USA Today, ABC News, Atlantic Christian Century. Walk us through uh, your Christianity Today blog, Thin Places. So Thin Places started um, not at Christianity Today. Like it started as an individual blog and then I was on BeliefNet for a while and then I was at Patheos. And meanwhile, I was writing for the hermeneutics site at Christianity Today, which is now the CT Women um, site uh, pretty regularly. So formed a relationship with the editors over there and they got to a point where they wanted to have bloggers come on their platform and so invited me to be one of them and I moved my blog uh, at that point from Pathios over to Christianity Today and at then realized once I got there that the blogging I had been doing up until that point was pretty frequently um, reflective thought pieces and kind of spiritual reflections about family life about disability um, sometimes just about a passage from the Bible and what was really working best on the Christianity Today website were more opinion pieces that were theologically informed and um, argumentative in nature. Uh, I did had done a lot of that type of writing for Christianity Today, but it was like once a month I was doing that, not two or three times a week. So I only ended up blogging uh, for CT, you know, online for about a year and a half because I had I got to a point where I was producing so many of those um, opinion-based pieces that I felt like I was losing my ability to write the more spiritually reflective um, kind of longer term, bigger picture pieces that was, had been what I did most of the time. And I was really also losing my ability um, on a practical level, just in terms of time to write books. And in some ways the blog was meant to be, a mechanism by which I could write books. And if it was meaning that I couldn't write books at all, then I decided I needed to actually leave that. So I wrote for that blog for about a year and a half. And then um, I ended and uh, really walked away for a while just to try to sort through what I was doing um, to get another book idea um, in motion. And since then, I have not had um, a major blogging presence, even though I've continued to write for some of those 
various, you know, religious and other outlets over the course of the past couple of years. Well, as you've talked about, you've written several books on uh, parenting and in your writing, you, you open yourself up to this great vulnerability to the everyday experience of parenting with its raw emotions, its triumphs and frustrations. Why, why do you take such a vulnerable approach? You know, it's funny. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I feel, I guess, strangely comfortable with being vulnerable. Uh, and I have learned over time that that is strange because other people do not uh, feel as comfortable admitting what they're thinking or feeling. Um, and yet, what I think I've seen is that when I am able to write something that is true to a pretty common human experience, it's really freeing for me, but also for other people. And so I very frequently in person, when I'm speaking through an email, through a letter, hear from people who say, oh my gosh, you are so honest and you put words to my experience. You helped me to understand what I was thinking and feeling. So I don't, it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm going to go be vulnerable today. Um, when I'm doing it, it more feels like I'm trying to work out what I'm thinking and feeling. And when that is something that seems connected to what other people are thinking and feeling, then maybe it will be helpful. So it does, I guess, feel like um, pretty natural to me, but also like it is a part of what we were talking about before. It's part of ministry to be willing to share that, yes, I have a child with special needs and I adore her and I could not be more grateful for her. And it was really hard for me when she was forced, first born because of the ways she challenged my sense of identity. And so that was, you know, what one of my books was about. And um, I think a lot of people have that experience, not necessarily with a child with special needs, but with all the different um, things that come in our lives that we don't expect. And so being willing to write about that and process that can give a way for other people to do the same. And again, to experience some freedom and even I think sometimes some healing, which is really um, what I would love for my writing to be able to do in the world. Well, I think, I think you tap into something and I think, uh, and maybe it's, it's for some of us, what, what uh, style of writing we, we enjoy. Um, because what I've seen in your writing is I feel with that there's a sense of authenticity there versus sometimes in ministry and sermons and in writing, we want to come up with this perfect illustration that always paints us in a positive light or our situations in a positive light. There's always that kind of catch catch point at the end. Um, but there's not always that in your writing. I mean, as you, as you said, you talked about the identity crisis um, in this book, and I, I think it bodes well for um, for your audience connecting deeper with what you're actually saying than if you just kind of came up with this false facade of of perfection. You know, it's funny because A Good and Perfect Gift is really about being a perfectionist and having that shattered in some ways by being given a child who, by the standards of the world, was not perfect. You know, the medical terminology for a condition like Down syndrome is an abnormality. And even in the church, we sometimes talk about um, disability in terms that are like, oh, what's wrong with that child. And um, there can be great compassion in that, but there's still this sense of, yeah, something is imperfect here. Um, and of course, from one way of seeing it, we're all imperfect, but um, there's a sense of 
for me having to rethink everything when Penny came into my life, including what it really meant to be human, what it meant to be whole. And it was so freeing for me as a perfectionist to recognize the ways in which I was just like my daughter, the ways that I was needy and vulnerable, and the way that expressing that need and vulnerability um, actually enables other people to care for me. And when other people then feel free to express their needs and vulnerability, it frees me up to care for them, that there's like this love that comes out of being willing to say, I'm not perfect. Like that uh, our limitations, our vulnerabilities, our needs can, in a, if things are going well, at least, lead to loving relationships that are so much more freeing and whole. So I think there was for me just an experience of freedom having been such an anxious perfectionist for all of my life and still to this day in many ways, I am that, but um, that in letting go of some of that um, really negative understanding of perfection for me to let go of some of that and be taught how to see the world differently, which meant exposing my own vulnerabilities and needs. That was actually like deeply good um, enabled connection, enabled freedom, and that other people felt the same way, whether or not they had a child with special needs. I think that was a big part of making this, um, this willingness just to say, yeah, I do not have it all together. And I'm pretty sure that's true of all of us. So what if we talked about that and actually helped each other through it? So what I hear you saying is that if you were to give a grade on a book report that I got an A plus for my proper understanding of that book. Absolutely. Oh, you really hesitated A++. there. You hesitated. That, that, <laughs> I thought you were going to continue talking. So I was waiting for the end of the question. <laughs> A++. So, you're so gracious. No, right, truly. So, yeah. I mean, that really is the, like the, that book is really about perfectionism much more than it is about disability, even though it is disability that allowed me to understand perfectionism, if that makes sense. This podcast is sponsored by Campbell University Divinity School, committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to help you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Jason Duke. Jason began his journey as a history major at Campbell, completed a Master of Divinity degree, and then he and his wife, Lori, went to Turkey for two years as support missionaries. On their return, Jason entered law school with a goal of providing financial platform for further bivocational ministry and mission work. But God had yet another turn in the journey for Jason. After graduating with his Juris Doctor and passing the bar, Jason entered the Marines and now serves as a JAG officer. Sometimes living out your call takes unexpected directions. How might Campbell help you discover or sharpen your call? Campbell University Divinity School offers Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Christian Ministry, and Doctorate of Ministry programs in flexible formats that follow students to have a rich face-to-face classroom experience, even while working or commuting to Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. For more information on our master's and doctoral level programs, visit divinity.campbell.edu. Well, your your latest book is a, is a shift away in many regards. Um, and, and this book, uh, White Picket Fences, Turning Towards Love in a World Divided by Privilege, you invite readers to re-examine their assumption about tribalism and self-justification and exclusion. And this, this powerful excerpt 
uh, stands out to me. It says, I used to think that privilege provided a foundation for personal growth and for discovering a purpose bigger than me because it took care of my material needs. But time and again, I found that the provisions of affluence suck me into a web of self-centeredness where I focus on myself, my own resentments and disappointments, and I get stuck in anxiety or eating disorders or drinking too much all over again. Walk us through the, the motivation behind this book. Yeah, so this book came in large part out again of this experience of having a child with a disability. I am a white woman. I come from a family who's been in the United States since the 1600s. So long legacy of um, being in this country. And there's been, um, I've been given educational opportunities. I've been given affluence um, and opportunities for all sorts of travel and all sorts of things that we might put under the heading of privilege. My uh, being without having worked for it, I've been given um, a lot that separates me from other people. And then I had a child who was given many of those same things, but she also was given a genetic code that meant she was not going to have all of those opportunities and that people were going to and have looked in from the outside and judged her negatively as a result of the way her face looks or uh, some of her behaviors or her diagnosis. And so it gave me having Penny in my life a little bit of a window into this uh, question of what it feels like to be marginalized, um, vulnerable, again, to use that word, and on the outside. And so I'd always thought about um, having grown up in North Carolina, some of the racial divisions that we saw in our small town, I thought about that even when we moved to the north because um, there didn't, there wasn't, there weren't as many people where I lived at all who were not white. And so there weren't these divisions, but there also, um, it was because there weren't relationships between people of different races uh, for the most part. And I just, when I had Penny come into my life, it helped me to think from not just a kind of reading books and taking sociology classes perspective, but actually from a more personal and experiential perspective about what is this thing we call privilege? Is there anything good about it? What's bad about it? What are the things that divide us? And is there any hope for uh, loving connection, for healing, and for um, getting through these divisions that I think we are really uh, coming to the surface. I think they've been here in American culture for a really long time, but I think they're coming to the surface in recent years um, across the media and political landscape. So I wanted to try to tell a story of my own life and of my own questions and thoughts that might invite readers into examining their own lives. Um, Again, not in a way that brings shame or guilt um, or denial of privilege, um, whether that's race or wealth or ability or opportunity, um, but instead brings kind of that freedom to be vulnerable, to ask questions, to have thoughts, and hopefully um, to move into a greater position of love um, as a result of that. And I think that passage you read um, comes from a chapter in the middle of the book that is talking about um, what often in my life and what I see in the world around me happens when you have wealth and opportunity is that you um, easily, and this happened to me, get stuck on yourself. 
instead of being freed up to love and serve other people. And so that was what I was examining there is just that question of, gosh, why with all that I've been given, why do I still get into a cycle of anxiety or depression or drinking too much wine um, instead of allowing that stability to um, give me a way to really, yeah, love and care for other people. Let's talk about privilege a little bit more. Um, You wrote, I've been given much more than I deserve and my very real social privilege has cut me off from others as much as it has also made my life comfortable. What, what helped you come to grips with your privilege? Mm. I think coming to grips with my privilege, there's, I mean, it is still an uncomfortable thing to me to admit um, that I, that so much of my life I don't deserve, right? That like I have wealth that came from great grandparents passing it down to grandparents, et cetera. I have um, all these different, again, like opportunities in life, whether that's like traveling to a foreign place where somebody has a house or um, opportunities for jobs and connections and things like that. Um, But I actually think a deeper understanding of um, two things, of grace uh, from a spiritual perspective, that sense of, well, what do I really mean when I say that I don't deserve God's love and yet I receive it anyway, um, all the time? Uh, that that is actually, there are some parallels there um, that allow you to say, yeah, I don't need to defend the fact like that I have that God's love is for me. Um, but I do need to receive it in such a way that it is offered out to other people because I did nothing to earn it. And I think that's true for me when it look when I look at these gifts I've been given uh, of my social status and um, education and wealth and things like that, and just trying to hold them loosely and um, see them as something that have been given to me that I might also be um, giving back in exchange. But at the same time, I guess in trying to, what you use the words like coming to grips with things, like for a long time, I think people who have had privilege have ended up, we've ended up putting ourselves in positions of superiority and of thinking, um, well, it's my responsibility to give back to those poor people over there, as opposed to we are really the same in our humanity and we've been given different things and things that we don't deserve, but I'm not just giving to others. I'm also receiving from them because not, yes, I have privilege and let's be clear and honest about that and try to hold it. Well, I also have needs. I mean, back to that conversation, I have vulnerabilities, I have weaknesses. Um, and I need people in my life, um, who are going to be friends and companions on the journey. Um, who are not like me because not just so that I can give to them, but also so that I can receive from them and so that we can actually have relationships um, with one another. So I guess I've come to grips with privilege um, through believing in grace and also through believing that um, there is a deeper meaning to the word privilege. Um, There's a chapter in the book where I write about recognizing the greatest moments that feel like privilege in my life have had nothing to do 
with social status or wealth or opportunity. They've had to do with human connection. So it was a privilege to care for my mother-in-law as she was dying. And it was a privilege to hold my daughter in my arms after she was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And there are countless stories from my life where there's that sense of, oh my gosh, I've been singled out for this moment and I don't deserve it. And those moments are about human connection um, and times of like love and vulnerability again um, that are really beautiful and powerful and have nothing to do with what we usually are talking about when we say the word privilege. Mm. Out of sight and out of mind tend to be most people's MO. And it's when it happens um, in our comfort zone that we take notice and raise hell um, around some of these things. And, and you wrote that we, we commit acts of linguistic whitewashing, painting over the ugly truth of our history and our, and our presence. Um, what has been for you the most significant example in the last 50 years of linguistic whitewashing? Well, you know, I think in um, the process of writing this book, I was looking back at my childhood and I was looking back at growing up in uh, this beautiful small town in North Carolina. And I actually went back and found the um, textbook that we used in fourth grade to learn North Carolina state history. And I went back and I looked at it and noticed, I looked, read through the whole thing and then looked up in the index to see whether slavery um, or Jim Crow laws or the civil rights movement were mentioned. And they weren't by name. Um, there were a couple references to people from Africa having been captured and brought to America. Um, but there was this sense of we're not going to teach fourth graders what happened. Um, and we're not going to give them a context for the reason why there are African Americans, um, you know, in their town and uh, working side by side in many places and ways. And I do think that for me was this kind of primary example of linguistic whitewashing, of not naming something for what it was. Um, I think there's a lot to be proud about as far as what it means to be an American. I am so grateful for our founders and for the Declaration of Independence and for the Constitution and for our system of government. And yet what I think that has meant for many Americans is that we deny some of the really ugly aspects of our history, which include Native Americans being pushed off of their land and many times, um, you know, really killed in mass, mass numbers. Um, or, of course, this huge enslavement and capture of uh, people from various countries in Africa being brought here against their will and worked in horrible conditions. And so I think I used to think that you either talk about this as if it's all horrible or as if it's all wonderful, instead of saying these ideals that our um, you know, founders gave us are really great and we wanna keep living into them because we have not done that in the past. And let's be honest about it, let's name it. Um, so that's what I mean by linguistic whitewashing is when we use words to get around the reality of the past as if we're afraid of it, instead of naming it for what it was and teaching our children what it was in such a way that we can learn from it and grow from it and live more and more into the ideals that I think are really beautiful upon which our country was founded. Well, I think certainly this book helps raises those questions and 
um, helps us identify where we see that at work in our given given context. But you know, I I tend to be a cynic, um, which is an awful thing for a pastor to say. But I think mm. I think most people are just generally okay with things the way they are. Yes, we we get up mm-hmm. in arms when media covers an injustice in our world, and we get passionate about it. But in general, we we don't want to do the hard, good, and difficult work of bringing change to our culture. Um, so do you think uh, that has to do with, with our entitlement, with our privilege? Um, so I do think that for uh, people who have the privilege of wealth or um, social status, you know, those types of things, it, it takes a lot to like nudge us out of our comfort zones. Um, and I, some of that is about entitlement and comfort. But I, I guess what I think we've done as a culture is we've like sacrificed joy for comfort or like sacrificed uh, like community, like all these different things we've kind of withdrawn into a comfortable place. And if we, it would be hard work and it would be sacrificial work to love each other better and to work for justice. But I also believe it would actually be like, we would like it more. Um, you've got a lot of miserable entitled people or miserable privileged people, like whatever word you want to use, or just a lot of people who they may not be miserable, but they're just kind of like living okay lives. And I just think that the beauty and the power and the um, joy that comes from like being pushed out of our comfort zones and towards other people, I think that for me was most obvious first off when I had a child with a disability and I didn't have people with intellectual disabilities in my life. And I honestly didn't really want to have people with intellectual disabilities in my life. And even when Penny was born, I wanted her in my life, but I was a little bit like, oh gosh, like, am I going to have to um, spend all my time with people with intellectual disabilities? Um, Of course, that just exposes a prejudice that I had. And when over time I started to actually get to know people with intellectual disabilities and believe that they were full human beings with a lot to offer to me and that I wasn't just someone who had something to offer to them, it really changed and enriched um, and grew me to be in those relationships. And that continues to be true with Penny. Uh, She is just as much of a... uh, whole person who challenges me and teaches me and um, pushes me as my other kids or as anyone else in my life. And that's in part because of the fact that she has an intellectual disability. So I do think that um, it would be more comfortable for me to not engage in those relationships, but it also is like not nearly as interesting, uh, fulfilling, um, or, or true somehow if I don't engage with those relationships. So what do you, what do you think is the best way to uncomfortably change all of this? Mm. Well, so that's one of the things I really wrestle with in the book, because I do think, like, I think we can come up with policies and programs. I think we can come up with structures um, that change things, uh, and and those are good to do. And I think we should be arguing in the political sphere about what tax reform or immigration reform or um, any number of these domestic issues, how they would potentially change things for um, different groups 
and for the common good. But I also think on an individual level, what we are called to do is to love one another and that that actually does require uh, sacrifice. It doesn't mean you go out looking for ways to sacrifice yourself. It means you go out looking for ways to love other people. And it's almost always going to mean that you're sacrificing something in the process. And it's also almost always going to mean that you're um, gaining something in the process because it's a relationship of love. So um, I guess on an individual level, I think it means um, asking for ways to participate in God's loving work in the world. And that's going to be different from person to person. But I also think it means start stopping uh, seeing ourselves as individuals and understanding ourselves as communities and as people who are participating in institutions. Because I think when we start to understand how connected we are to one another and that like change for a whole society happens on that institutional level. And so, okay, if we all go to the same church, then maybe our church can make a difference in like the foster care system in a way that no individual member of that church actually could. If we're all participating in the same school, maybe the school as a whole or the company or the, I mean, you can play it out with institutions. So trying to see the way in which like individuals loving each other is awesome. But when we understand the power we have more collectively um, to change systems and to change policies and to change the way a whole um, community sees an issue or, or responds, just even seeing an issue in the first place and then responding to it. I think that's where um, real change can happen. But you're right, it will cost something. I mean, actual money, as well as um, I think there's entering into all of these issues requires us to face pain. Um, and that is uncomfortable, if not painful. And so it's really hard to do. Mm. You wrote in the book, the real privilege of my life has come in learning what it means to love others, that love involves suffering and sacrifice and sleepless nights and tears and heartache and great gifts. Um, what's, what's your greatest hope for this book? Yeah, my greatest hope for this book is that people would feel like um, there is hope for healing the social and political divides in our nation and that um, participating together and collectively in a work of love is going to make a difference. Uh, that will be worth it, that it's um, worth it for us personally. And so my hope for this book is that it invites people into a gentle conversation about a challenging topic, um, but one that is, again, a conversation worth having because of the way it can ultimately, I think it exposes a wound. And the only reason to expose a wound is so that it can be healed. And that would be my hope for this book is that it begins that process, if not takes it all the way to completion of um, some healing uh, for individuals and systems, people, communities um, in our nation. Well, this book drops on October the 2nd. If you want to stay connected with Amy Julia Becker, you can follow her on Twitter, Amy Julia Becker. That's pretty cool that you actually got to do your full name because some of us had to you know, sacrifice and get something else. Uh, and then you can also follow her on our website, www.amyjuliabecker.com. Um, Amy Julia, thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable and thank you for your willingness to invite us to, to rethink our privilege. 
Thank you, Andy. It was really great to talk with you about all of this. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or from any other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 